A few months ago, I was in Washington, D.C. with my family, and we were eating at a restaurant near the White House. After dinner, I called for an Uber to take us back to our hotel, and while we waited for the Uber car, I began to chat with the valet. I asked him how things were going, and he proceeded to tell me it was a summer unlike any other. Because of COVID and the racial protest, the usually busy summer tour season was severely impacted, and the tip money he would make from valeting cars was minimal because the tourists and the guests that normally frequented the restaurant in the summer was simply not there. But he was grateful there was work, and he was just trying to make ends meet. Here was a hard-working man, and I thought I wanted to help him out. And so I took out $5 from my wallet and gave it to him. I said to him, this is for you. It isn't much, but hope it helps you out in some way. We chatted some more while we waited for the Uber. And then suddenly the skies opened up and a very heavy thunderstorm poured heavy rain. Just at that time, my Uber arrived, but parked on the other side of the street about a block away. The Uber couldn't find us because of the heavy downpour, but I knew where the car was. My option was to cancel the Uber and wait another 20 minutes for another car, or to run with my family about a city block in the soaking rain without an umbrella to catch the car. It was a tough decision, but just then the valet said, do you want an umbrella? As he offered me one of the giant umbrellas from the restaurant that he would use normally to escort guests. I said, sure, but I don't have a way of returning this umbrella back to you once I got into the Uber car. He said, don't worry about it. We have tons of these umbrellas, and I'm in charge of them. So just take it as a gift from the restaurant. It was one of those 30 to $35 high-quality umbrellas. I took him on his kindness, and we were able to get into our Uber car relatively dry in spite of the downpour. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you think he offered me the umbrella because I gave him $5? What was the basis of him giving us the big umbrella? Maybe he was just a nice guy? If I hadn't talked to him to ask him how he was and gave him $5 as a gift, would he have offered us or given us the umbrella? Was it my kindness that initiated a kind reaction in response on his part? We actually debated this as a family as we got home. My children were saying we got a $35 quality umbrella for only $5. I said it wasn't about the money. It was about reciprocating kindness. But it is a question we will never know the answer to. What was his motivation? In many ways, this is similar to what Christians struggle with as it relates to our lives. Because Christians have the notion that if they do good, then God will bless them. If they do bad, then God will punish them or withhold from them blessings. While this is one way in which the Lord operates, as Deuteronomy 29 and 30 tells us, He is not bound to this formula. Because if we always receive what we deserve for all the bad that we did, none of us would be alive today. We would all be severely punished. But God is a God of love, and His grace and mercy 
is part of his equation in how he deals with us. Many Christians don't understand this. They go through some difficult experience and they wonder what wrongs they did. So they try to make it up and they do good works just to try to get God on their side to heal them, to reverse the situation. And when he doesn't, it leaves that Christian wondering if God really loves him, if we are truly his children, or even if God is angry with them, or perhaps in turn, we get angry with God. We forget that sometimes God brings us through times of trials to refine us, to draw us closer to Him, or sometimes for reasons we may never know, like Job in the Old Testament. But His actions are always foundationed in love. We've said it before, but there's nothing you and I can do that will make God love us more or love us less. His love is unconditional. And there's nothing more you and I can do that will make you and I more saved or less saved. Salvation comes when we put our faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. The realization of this truth is so life-changing and freeing. You don't have to worry how much more of God's love and grace and mercy you can try to get. It is extended to you because He loves you unconditionally. And that's all you and I need to know. Just like it doesn't matter the motivation of why we got that umbrella, the important thing is we received one in our time of need. So in the freedom of this truth, you don't need to play mind games with God. Salvation is yours through faith alone in Christ alone. Not because you deserve it, but because of God's grace. This is a truth that will free your life from the bondage and the shackles of living a life thinking you need to follow a set of rules, not in the Bible, to somehow get more of God's favor and grace. As a side note, this is why the Catholic sacramental system isn't biblical. God's grace isn't a commodity that is dispensed to you if you do certain acts. It is a free gift from God, freely given to all who place their faith in Him. Justification by faith alone in Christ alone is such an important truth that Paul will defend it in five different ways in this section we're going to be looking at today. We continue our study in the book of Galatians. And so if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn with me to the book of Galatians chapter 3 as we take a look at verses 1 to 18. Galatians chapter 3 verses 1 to 18. Now let me warn you, some of these verses get a bit theological and it will require you to really think and concentrate or perhaps even rewatch this video. But the great truths that are presented in this section, if you think about it and instill it in your life, will radically change your life. Look at verse 1 of chapter 3. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. Paul begins chapter 3 by calling the Galatians foolish. Why? Because they had so easily bought into a false gospel after they had been clearly taught the truth. And again, this truth that had been so clearly taught and presented was the truth that Jesus Christ died on the cross for mankind's sin. And only by trusting in This finished work of Jesus Christ crucified is salvation obtained. It was a free gift 
There wasn't anything anyone else needed to do. Notice how Paul used the very strong word here to describe them. He used the word bewitched as if the Galatians had come under a a strong spell or an evil influence that minimized the cross and seemingly made Christ's death unnecessary. My friends, understand that for sure Satan is involved in the blinding of the eyes of the Galatian Christians. You see, Satan hates the cross of Christ because it spelled his eternal defeat. So he will do everything and anything to minimize the cross to belittle it, to question the death and the resurrection of Jesus, to instill in our minds that salvation through faith alone, in Christ alone, is too easy. You have to work for your salvation, at least contribute a little work to it. That's why we in our generation must cling strongly to the exclusivity of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ through His death on the cross. As a church, we must not deviate from this essential core doctrine. Paul reminded the Galatian Christians in verse 1 that they had been told the truth. It was clearly portrayed in the original Greek. That word speaks to the idea of a public announcement. It was clearly announced to the Galatians that salvation and justification is by faith alone in Christ alone. But sadly, they had now bought into the false teachings that they had to do something more, which included following certain Jewish customs and ritual practices, such as circumcision, to be saved. So essentially, they were saying the cross of Christ wasn't enough. And yet, when Jesus was on the cross, He said, Tetelestai, as He stretched out His arms to die for us. Tetelestai meaning, it is finished. He was proclaiming that the work of salvation was completed on the cross. Nothing else needed to be done for salvation. Why do I keep hitting on this point? Because it is so important, and yet so many Christians today still feel that they need to do more in order to be truly worthy of salvation. And if they believe this, then they fall into the danger of legalism. The Apostle Paul will now work through a series of arguments to really nail down justification by faith alone in Christ alone, a core truth of the Christian faith. Now, Paul's first argument is through experience and logic. So, number one, if you're taking notes, argument number one, experience and logic. Experience and logic. And he will use four questions about the Galatians' own conversion experience and logically defend salvation by faith alone in Christ alone. Let's take a look. Verse 2. This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? The first of these four questions posed to the Galatians Christian is this. How were you saved? By faith or by works? Of course, the answer to this rhetorical question is by faith. They were saved by faith. Paul was reminding them that they didn't do anything to be saved apart from trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ. As a Gentile church, they wouldn't even have known about the Jewish laws and customs when they were saved. So why follow it now to continue to be saved? Let me give you an example. 
let's say you were washed up on a deserted island and you survived because the island had lots of coconuts from which you received water and food until rescue came. Ten years later, when telling the story, you say, well, I was saved and survived because I was thinking about my family. And I kept fit by jogging five miles a day around the island. And I read my pocket Bible every day. True? No. You survived because there were coconuts on that island, plain and simple. Keep to the truth. The other things are good activities, but they are activities that didn't really save you. And that's the point. Paul brought them back to the core truth. How were you saved? You were saved by faith. Look at me at verse 3. Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Here in Paul's second question to the Galatians, he asked them, if salvation is a work of faith by the Spirit, why do you have to maintain your salvation through works or obedience to a set of rules? It was a question of how they are sanctified. Paul's point was it was ridiculous to think that you are saved one way and then you go on towards spiritual maturity through another way. Justification and sanctification come from the same source and through the same method, faith in Jesus Christ. For example, let's say you get free tickets into a sporting event or a concert at SM MOA's arena, courtesy of SM Corporation. After the event, you start to pick up trash around the arena. And someone asks you, why are you doing this? And your reply is so that I can pay off my free entrance ticket. They will laugh at you and think you foolish because the tickets are free. That free ticket allowed you to enter without any obligation to do anything once inside. So just relax and enjoy. The ticket had already been paid for by someone else. Now if you were to clean up the arena because you just like to clean up, or to show some appreciation and gratitude for the free ticket you received from SM Corporation, then that's fine. To do it out of a sense of obligation, thinking you have to do it, is foolish. And that's why Paul calls the Galatian Christians foolish. In the Christian life, there are many things we are called to do in the Scriptures. But we do it not because if we don't do it, then we are not saved or to maintain our salvation. But we do it because we want to honor the Lord. And out of a deep appreciation and love in response to His free gift of salvation. So we attend church for corporate worship. We spend time in God's Word. We give. We we serve others. We love our enemies. Not because not doing so will cause us to lose our salvation. But we do so in voluntary response to show our appreciation and love for God's grace in our lives. This certainly makes the task more joyful and certainly very freeing. Look at me at verse 4. Have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? And this third question from Paul about the Galatians' experience with the gospel He asked if all of their suffering was in vain. You see, the Christians in the region of Galatia apparently had suffered a lot of persecution because of their belief in salvation through Christ alone. 
Now, if they were to turn away from the gospel of grace to a gospel of law, their suffering would have been for nothing. It would have been in vain. They suffered for the truth. Now they were turning away from the truth they suffered for. What a waste, Paul was saying. Verse 5, Therefore he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? The fourth question that Paul asked the Galatians is the basis of miracles they saw and experiences recorded in Acts chapter 14. He asked if the miracles came by faith through grace or because they did good works, then that produced miracles. You see, miracles always authenticated the message of truth. That's why Jesus did miracles to tell the people who heard Him that His message was true. It worked the same way for the apostles to establish the truth of their message. And faith in the Lord was strengthened through miracles. But if miracles come because you do something, then it becomes formulaic. A plus B equals miracles. Go on a pilgrimage, say a prayer, give to the poor, it equals a miracle. But that simply isn't the case. Furthermore, the miracles already happened in the area of Galatia. As recorded in Acts chapter 14, even before they knew about the Jewish laws through the Judaizers. Therefore, Paul was saying, don't give the law credit for miracles when it did nothing and it came after it was already done. Let me give you an example to help you illustrate Paul's point. Let's say you get a brand new car from Bill Gates just because he loved you and because you were a loyal Microsoft user. And you received the car and believed and knew that it was given to you by Bill Gates. But then I come along and I say, no, it's really me who gave it to you. You see, I told Bill Gates, and I don't know him, but I pretend and I tell you, I I told Bill Gates to give you a car. Would you believe that lie? Of course not. I'm taking credit for what has already been received. That's what the Judaizers were doing. And that was the point of Paul's fourth question, that adherence to the law was taking credit for things it shouldn't as the Judaizers were advocating. And the Galatians weren't to be so foolish as to believe them. These four questions supported Paul's argument for justification by faith alone in Christ alone through their experience and through a logical explanation. Now, the second argument that Paul uses is through scriptural examples. Number two, scriptural examples examples. Look with me at verse 6. Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, Paul now uses the scriptures to argue for justification by faith alone. The Judaizers would of course use the Old Testament to defend their position since the Mosaic laws are found there. But Paul did the same thing and went to the Old Testament, but went further back Before the law was given to Moses, he went to Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation. Paul pointed out that Abraham was not justified by good works, but through faith. Abraham believed God, and that faith was accounted to him, the Bible says, for righteousness, credited to him as righteousness, meaning that faith led 
to his being declared righteous, being saved. Abraham didn't have to do any work other than to trust God to be saved. Now, now why would God pick Abraham out of all the people of the world to begin the Jewish nation and to have the Messiah come through his line? The answer is we don't know. Abraham was chosen through the criteria of God's grace. God could have chosen anyone, but he chose to choose Abraham. Abraham wasn't more worthy than the next guy. In fact, he had many flaws in many areas of his life. But God picked him by his grace and asked Abraham to believe in him. Abraham's actions illustrated that he believed in God by faith. He moved out of his homeland to a new land as God has instructed. He was willing to sacrifice his son Isaac as as God tested his faith, but God eventually stopped the sacrifice by providing for an animal to be sacrificed instead. But in totality, Abraham's actions didn't save him. His actions exhibited his faith in God, which saved him. It was Abraham's faith in the living God, Yahweh, that saved him. Further, Abraham's salvation through faith sealed in a covenanted promise from God in Genesis 12 and 15 came even before the practice of circumcision in Genesis chapter 17. Since the father of the Jewish people was saved before the institution of circumcision, Paul is refuting the Judaizers' insistence on circumcision now as a part of salvation. Faith in God was enough to be declared righteous. It's always been that way, even before the law came into existence. Look at verses 7 to 9. Therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. Paul continues arguing that since Abraham was saved by faith, then his spiritual children were saved to the Savior Jesus, both Jew and Gentile. They would also be saved by faith. But note in verse 9, that does not mean all people will be saved. Just those who place their faith in the Lord God just like Abraham did. You see, God provided the way of salvation through His Son, Jesus Christ, for everyone. But each individual has to accept that gift of salvation by faith. Let me help you understand this important point. Let's say that there is a math problem, and if you provide the right answer, you get to go to heaven. But if you don't provide the right answer, you go to hell. You only have one shot, and the answer is more than 500 digits long. You can't have a calculator, and you can't use a computer. Also, the math problem is exceptionally difficult, and in fact, impossible to solve with the limitations of the human mind. But say the one who gave the problem already solved it, and provided that answer on a sheet of paper, and the solution is available to everyone. You just have to go get the answer sheet and write down the provided answer. It's that easy. 
But so many don't get the answer sheet because some won't trust the answer, thinking maybe the one who solved it isn't smart enough, even though it was his math problem. Or maybe in their pride they believe that the answer on that sheet of paper must be wrong. Or they don't want the easy solution, an answer handed to them. They want to struggle with trying to solve it hoping against hope that they will somehow be able to stumble upon the answer or think that if they get close enough, it will be good enough. But you see, unless you get the answer perfectly, you don't go to heaven. I hope you see my point. So it is with salvation. The impossible problem of sin has been solved through Christ's death and made available for all. All you have to do is receive it and trust that it works. You can try to solve it by yourself, but that is to your own detriment since you will never be able to save yourself. My friends, if you have not today received the free gift of salvation in Jesus who died for you, you can do it now at this moment and receive the solution in Christ to the sin problem a problem we can't solve ourselves, but has been solved for us. Place your trust in Jesus Christ today. He is the answer to life's problems. Look at me at verse 10. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Here in verse 10, we find Paul's third argument for justification by faith alone in Christ alone. And it is this, number three. Faith and law are mutually exclusive as it relates to salvation. Faith and law or faith and work are mutually exclusive as it relates to salvation. Here in verse 10, Paul quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 26. To show that there is no way works, specifically obedience to the law, can save in any way. Because all it can do is condemn, not save. You see, if you're under the law, you must perfectly comply with the law. Follow all of the rules. If you do not, then you are cursed. Even if you break one law, you are technically a lawbreaker and therefore not perfect. So unless you perfectly as a good person, obey all the laws of all the law books of all nations, then you are not saved. So say, for example, you don't believe that salvation is by faith in Jesus, but say, I will be a good person and follow all the laws perfectly. Again, it means I cannot break any laws of any nation in the world. That means you would need to know every law out there. Because as they say, ignorance of the law is no excuse. Here are some interesting laws I found that you may not know. Did you know that in Milan, Italy, there is a legal requirement for you to smile at all times except in funerals and hospitals? If you own pets and you live in Rome, it is a law that you must walk your pet dog at least once a day. If not, you will be fined 625 euros. This law against animal cruelty in Rome extends to goldfish as well. While they cannot be walked, they must have room to swim. 
Goldfish must not be allowed to be kept in bowls or in plastic bags like you see them being sold at the fair. They must live in a full-size aquarium. In Turin, Italy, dog owners can be fined up to 500 euros if they don't walk their pet at least three times a day. In Scotland, if someone knocks on your door and requests the use of your bathroom, you must let them use it. In Samoa, it is illegal to forget your wife's birthday. I'm glad I don't live in Samoa. Running out of gas in Germany on the Autobahn is illegal and you will be fined. Wearing high heels in certain places in Greece is illegal. Don't you dare wear your Winnie the Pooh shirt in Poland. Why? Because this cuddly little bear doesn't wear pants. And because of that, Poland issued a ban on Winnie the Pooh around playgrounds and schools, finding the character a bit too risque for impressionable children. Another law in Japan says you can't be overweight, save for sumo wrestlers, in an effort to prevent obesity in its citizens. Japan created the Metabo laws. This requires people between the ages of 40 and 70 to have waist not over 33.5 inches for men and 35.4 inches for women. I guess I broke that law, and I would certainly be fined in Japan. And here in the Philippines, did you know that there is a law that states that annoying people can be charged for being merely annoying? The second paragraph of Article 287 in the Penal Code states that any other coercion or unjust vexation shall be punishable by arresto menor or a fine ranging from 5 pesos to 200 pesos or both. Legal experts and laymen have condemned the the term unjust vexation as an ambiguous catch-all provision with no specific meaning, merely something to charge annoying people with. So if you want a salvation through the law or through the obedience of the law or good works, then you have to obey perfectly all the laws of all the nations. It is impossible. Verse 11 and 12 but that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Here in verse 11, Paul quotes from Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, which states that obedience to the Old Testament legal laws is not the basis for salvation. It is faith in God. And again in verse 12, Paul quotes from Leviticus chapter 18, verse 5, to say that faith and the law are mutually exclusive. You cannot combine the two. There is no little amount of works that one can combine to faith. If you desire to set up rules for what a Christian should do and not do as the basis of salvation, then you yourself must put yourself under the law, and you will find out very quickly You cannot keep it. Look at verse 13 with me. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. The fourth argument that Paul uses is the argument of hope. Number four, hope. Because no one can live out the law perfectly, and since it is a curse to us, 
then there is no hope. We all have broken at least one moral law, so technically we are all condemned to hell. However, Jesus Christ provides hope and gives us a solution through His shed blood. Paul writes that Christ redeemed us, here in verse 13, means to buy us back from the clutches of sin. The price is death because the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. So to buy back, the price of death must be paid. And God paid the price through His Son's death when Jesus became a curse for us, meaning He took on our sins in order to free us and to give us hope. He paid the price of death so we didn't have to pay it. That is what we call in theology substitutionary atonement. Substitutionary atonement. Jesus was our substitute. You see, God cannot declare us righteous because we are not. He can't sweep sin under the rug. So what has to be done? The price for our sins has to be paid. It was paid through the life of His own Son. In verse 13, Paul quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 22. Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 22. If a man has committed a sin deserving of death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree. Here, the Old Testament states that if they deserve death, then they hang on a tree. But Christ didn't deserve to hang from a tree. But because He took on the sins of the world, past, present, and future, He hung on the tree as one marked guilty. Paul was using the Old Testament law to say that Jesus took on the sins of the world. And that's why Paul would write in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, For He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And my friends, that is the hope that Jesus provides. He who knew no sin became sin for us. To take on our sins upon Himself because He so loved us so that we don't need to die. Look at verse 14. That the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Here Paul says that Christ became the sacrifice for us so that Gentiles may also be saved just like the Jews and that all through faith can be saved and receive the Holy Spirit which seals, which indwells, which baptizes the believer and identifies them as a child of God. I know that these verses have been a bit theological But what a message of hope if you take time to understand it. If you take time to think about it and meditate upon these great truths of the Scriptures. To know that the worst of sinners can be saved by God. And that we don't need to live under the shame of our sins committed in the past, in the present, or in the future. But Instead, we can live with humble confidence that someone died for us to bring us salvation. What a thought. What a freeing thought. Now, this is not a license to sin more, but it is truly freeing that our identity is not as sinners, but as one saved. 
those who are basing their salvation on good works will always wonder if they are good enough to enter heaven, especially if they have just sinned. Are they good enough to enter heaven with their good works? But Christians who believe in salvation by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ know that they are never good enough, but they have been made perfect through Christ. And so our salvation is secure. It is a freeing thought. I want you to think at this moment of all the sins, the really bad ones, the ones you have hidden in dark places in your mind and in your heart, sins that you wouldn't tell your parents, your spouse, your children, your best friend. Perhaps it's a sin of lust. You lust for someone that is not your spouse. Or sin of going to website that caused you to think bad thoughts. Or the jealousy of your heart. Or the pride of your heart. Or hatred in your heart. Whatever it may be, I want you to think of the worst of sins in your life. And then I want you to envision what will be the thought if those sins were ever exposed to everyone. How will you feel? I'm sure you and I would feel shame. I certainly would. I would be shameful that as a pastor I could think these thoughts. Now, I would be utterly embarrassed if you had a copy of the daily transcript of my thought life made available to you and to all. And now I want you to think that these sins are all presented to the Holy Heavenly Father. How would you feel? You would feel very unworthy, shamed. You would say, you don't belong in the presence of a holy God. Satan would certainly say that. Stephen doesn't belong in heaven. Look what he's done. Look what he's thought. But God would declare to all, no, Stephen does belong here. You do belong here because I have declared you righteous in my sight. But how, Lord, I've sinned because my son paid the price for all your sins. And so you belong here and I declare you as one righteous. That is justification in a nutshell. And that is, my friends, what brings hope where we have a hopeless world. There is hope when the worst of sinners can be saved. That is a message that will resonate in this world because there are so many broken people out there who feel like their lives are so messed up that there's nothing they can do or nothing can be done for them. But I'm here to tell you it doesn't matter if you are a hardened criminal or the most hated of persons, everyone can find hope in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Not in us striving to do good works to try to make amends. You and I cannot make amends fully for all the wrongs we have done. It's impossible. Let's say you kill someone. You can't make it up to their family. A hundred million dollars wouldn't bring back their loved ones. Hope is found when you realize and accept that someone has paid the price for your sin. We call that redemption. And it only comes through faith alone in Christ alone. 
Look at verse 15 and 16 with me. Brethren, I speak in the manner of men, though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one. And to your seed, who is Christ. Here, Paul argues for justification for faith through the argument, number five, of consistency. Consistency. Paul now heads off an argument that the Judaizers may have been propagating. They may have been saying that because the law came after Abraham's justification by faith, that somehow it was replaced. Paul's point is that you can't change something midstream especially if it is a covenant or a promise coming from the unchanging God. If God's way of salvation has always been through faith in Him, because no one can save themselves through the law or good works, then faith in Him is what saves and is applied through all ages. Again, using the illustration of Abraham, Paul was saying that the promises of Abraham for salvation was not fulfilled with the giving of the law, but fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ would be the one that fulfilled the promise of salvation. He was that seed, singular. It would not come through other seeds, plural, that came from Abraham. So again, Paul is saying it is Jesus Christ. The appropriation of salvation through Christ was for people of all ages, including Abraham, who placed their trust in God. It had not changed it was the same for all. That is the argument from consistency. It's not fair if the standards keep changing, right? What then would be the motivation? We would lose heart for what we live for. For example, if only the valedictorian gave the speech at graduation, and that's the rule, the top one, everyone would compete if they wanted to deliver the speech to be number one. But then, let's say next year, the rules change and the top five got to give a speech. And then the following year, it was the top two. And then the following year, is back to the top one. It would get very confusing. If you wanted to give a speech, it would be very difficult to know what would be the standard. That's why it's important that in salvation, it's the same standard. Salvation is through faith alone. There can be no consistency with good works or following the law. Why? Because the question naturally comes up, how much good works do you need to do to be saved? How many rules are you allowed to break and still go to heaven? Just ask someone who places their trust in doing good or following a set of rules. Ask them, how much good do you need to do to be saved? Where is the cutoff? And who defines your cutoff? If one who is strict and follows certain rules, ask them, how many times can you break the rules and still be saved? It's arbitrary. There are no rules. And the inconsistency of just how much good works and how many laws you must obey makes salvation unsure. And because it is unsure and unsteady, therefore there is no salvation at all. Certainly there is no assurance of salvation. But God's standards are clear-cut under heaven, and it is through perfection. And since we are all sinners, we need to be justified through faith alone in Christ alone who died in our place. 
That is what makes salvation certain and consistent for all types of people. And that is what brings us assurance. We are not perfect, but we are saved. Finally, look at verses 17 and 18. And this I say that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Paul writes that consistency and permanence of faith leading to justification was not altered by the law given 430 years after the promise was made to Abraham. During this long period of time, God saved the patriarchs on the basis of faith alone, and the law didn't do anything to change it. What then is the purpose of the law? We'll talk about that next week. But I want you to think about salvation. God's salvation plan for mankind has always been by grace alone through faith alone. Faith in what? Faith in the death of Jesus Christ, the Savior, who died in our place and paid the price of our sin so that we can be free. I encourage you, my friends, to dwell on this freeing truth this week. And if you do, it will certainly bring joy to your life. It will certainly change your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Although these verses may be a bit difficult and theological to understand, Father, you are portraying a foundational truth, that of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. Help us to think through all of its practical implications. Help us to understand it in such a way that it frees us from the shackles of sin and of bondage of legalism. Help us to live lives that remind us that our salvation is certain in you. And in that we can find joy because we are assured that we are saved. Thank you, Lord, for these truths expounded in the book of Galatians. May the Holy Spirit continue to teach and to guide. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.